0: Uh, of course, we are studying the book of Jeremiah, and of course, you know, Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He was also a patriot. And he was called by God to preach repentance to the Jews and warned them of coming judgment. As a result, he was considered a traitor to his people and was aided by his people. Jeremiah was actually part of the cancel culture before there was a cancel culture. Of course, remember historically there were three what we call major prophets that all lived at the same time, Jeremiah being the senior, uh, when you get into his study, it's evident and very probable that Daniel and Ezekiel both, because of their backgrounds, Daniel being a part of the royal household uh, by relation, and Ezekiel being a part of the Levitical priesthood, or he would have been, he was a child, he would have been a uh, part of the priesthood if he had still been back in the promised land. But no doubt these young men, Ezekiel and Daniel, would have been in and around Jerusalem and would have heard Jeremiah, in particular, in his discourses. Of course, these three major prophets and of three conquests. Jerusalem was actually subjugated over a period of three uh, invasions over 19 years. Uh, The first two didn't result in the destruction of the city. Uh, Basically, just trying to get the people back in line underneath Nebuchadnezzar's authority. Then finally, in the third uh, conquest, there was an 18-month siege, tremendous deprivation and starvation and suffering inside the city, and eventually the city was destroyed. Every stone toppled, and the temple burned. Uh, We see that Daniel was taken captive in the first conquest. We see Ezekiel was taken captive in the second conquest. And Jeremiah ministered this entire period of time, some four decades, inside the city of Jerusalem. Alright, quick review. Last time, two weeks ago, chapter 23, an important chapter. Several things we can draw back from, but one of which was in verse 5 and 6. You know, we have talked before how the synoptic gospels basically answer four prophecies about the Messiah that are foretold in the Old Testament. Uh, this comes from a, a, a Isaiah chapter 11, where it identifies the Messiah as being a branch, capital B. And that branch is a person that grows out of the stump of the house of Jesse. The destroyed uh, lineage of Jesse, of course, David was the son of Jesse, uh, but showing just how humble uh, the the. Royalty or the, the reign of, of Judah had to come, not even called the stump of David, it's called the stump of Jesse. But this branch was then further identified in four other areas in the Old Testament. The branch was prophesied to be a king, the king of the Jews. The branch was prophesied to be a suffering servant, a uh, nobody. Uh, a branch was uh, foreca- uh, foretold to be a man, and then the branch was prophesied to be God. And we see the four Gospels answer those four prophecies. John, Jesus, is demonstrated and proven to be the Son of God. And Luke, he is demonstrated and proven to be the Son of a man, a human, in his lineage. Uh, and Mark, he is proven to be a nobody, a suffering servant. But in Matthew, he is presented as the King of the Jews. It comes from this verse, where it says, Don't worry, uh, you know God is preaching judgment through Jeremiah. It's going to get tough. You're gonna, to, you're gonna be taken out of the land for the, an extended period of time. But I'm going to keep every promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, "I will raise unto the lineage of David a righteous branch. A king shall reign and prosper. And he shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, shall be restored and dwell safely." And this is his name. The, the name of the branch is... Who is the name of the branch of the, this king? Well, he's the Lord, our righteousness. And so that again is an indication that the Messiah would in fact be the Lord. And then in chapter 23, verses 7 and 8, we're talking about another restoration of Israel that will put to shame the first restoration. And of course, as we go through the pages of the Old Testament, we see frequently... God reminds Israel as to what He did, who He is, and who they were. Always pointing back to the Exodus. A few weeks ago as we celebrated uh, the resurrection, of course that week was Passover week. And the whole purpose of the annual Passover Seder is for Dad to teach his family, remind his family, teach his children the truths of God's majesty and greatness when God delivered the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Well, that was an impressive uh, re- recollection. You know, here they were, a slave people for some four centuries. Moses, this 80-year-old no money shepherd from Midian, comes and goes toe-to-toe to with the most powerful man on the planet, Pharaoh, the most powerful military, the Egyptian army, and all the gods of paganism, the gods of Egypt. And over the course of ten plagues, God brought uh, Egypt to its knees. And then, of course, delivered them through the miracle of the Red Sea. Well, throughout history, God has reminded them that this incident proves that He is God and He is great. Well, we're told here in verses 7 and 8 that there's going to be another deliverance that's going to make you forget all about that one. Well, oftentimes you see Bible teachers point to the restoration after 70 years where King Cyrus allowed Zerubbabel to lead the Israelites back into the land of, of, the, of the land of promise. Uh, folks, that's not nearly as impressive story as this deliverance from Egypt. You know, as we will study in greater detail, as we go through the study of Jeremiah, there was a point after 70 years where the immediate persons came to authority. And Jeremiah went to King Cyrus and said, King Cyrus, let me show you in the book of Isaiah. Over a hundred years ago, the God of heaven said that you, and called you by name, by the way, were going to release the children of Israel. Well, Cyrus was so impressed by this prophecy that he did. But understand what happened. Cyrus said, whoever wants to move back to the promised land can go. Less than 50,000 out of an estimated 2 million went." Well, that's not very impressive. Cyrus said, you have my permission. Not only that, I'll provide funding and provide transportation for you to get back there. Well, that's not nearly as impressive as walking through the midst of the Red Sea on dry land with the Egyptian army dipping at your tail. So I would say that pales in comparison to the first exodus. But what (laughs) precedes it is 2,000 years of there being no Israel, no place to call home, Yet the Jews were never assimilated into other countries. They were always a distinct people because of the kosher laws and other reasons. God, they retained their identity. And then after 2,000 years, on May the 14th, 1948, after the attempt the extermination of the Holocaust, you've got David Ben-Gurion there in Tel Aviv. Oh, it's a great story. They read the Declaration of Independence, and they're having to hustle because it's almost Shabbat. I mean, literally, they are racing to get this done so they can initially uh, officially announce their independence before they had to the rest on the Sabbath. Because if it went too long, they couldn't announce their independence. And then all of a sudden, the Arab countries would be on top of them and be too late. So they literally are hustling to beat Sabbath. They're beating, racing to beat 6 p.m. But Ben-Gurion reads from the next, uh, Ezekiel 36, the Valley of Dry Bones, and declares their existence. They're immediately attacked by five Arab nations this ragtag group of Israelis that just survived the Holocaust, with less than nineteen thousand men under arms, no tanks, no airplanes, they're attacked by five organized armies, and they win. Hmm. That's a miracle. Amen. That's a bigger miracle than this one. Then in the Six Day War in nineteen sixty seven, again the they, the the comparison of the military was was. Like OU playing OSU, any football team. It's not even a not
1: even And Israel
0: had a... I'm sorry, I know, Doc, and Horace, But, you know, Israel wins in six days because, of course, they had to the rest on the Sabbath, you know. But they win this directly. What a miracle. And so after 2,000 years, of having no place to call their home. They're literally back in the land. Well, that's what was prophesied right here, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. Again, just remembering the history of all this, we see Abraham given the promise. We see the lineage from Abraham down through uh, deliverance of the exodus going into the promised land, the 400 years of the time that's reported in the book of Judges. We see the account of the rule of the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the disobedience, the subjugation of the northern ten tribes, and then ultimately the subjugation. Of the southern two tribes of the Babylonian captivity, and the temple was destroyed, and from that point, there was no king in Israel. The next king of the lineage of David will be who? Jesus. King Jesus, that's exactly right. But there was no king. Hosea prophesied, said Israel will exist many days without a king. That is, in fact, true. Now, again, Isaiah 11 says that after Israel returns to the promised land the second time that King Messiah is going to come and establish his authority. What's interesting is when Isaiah made that prophecy they hadn't been driven out of the land the first time. But Isaiah 11 says that after they returned the second time. Well, after their first return was the that that I referenced a moment ago. You have the account of Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi the close of the canon of the Old Testament. In history, we know the Maccabean Revolt. We know Roman Conquest. Ultimately, we see the fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9. The Messiah came riding over the top of the Mount of Olives on the very day He was prophesied to make His appearance, but He was not received. In fact, as Daniel 9 says, He was martyred, He was crucified, He was slain, He was sacrificed. So again, the king showed... Zechariah 9 9, but they rejected their king and the temple was destroyed. Now we see the second return. The diaspora, after some 2,000 years, we see the return. We see historically the Dreyfus Affair, Theodore Herzl, the Zionist movement. We see the Holocaust, and then we see David Ben-Gurion and the Declaration of Independence that I talked about just a moment ago. And now Israel's been back in the land for what? Some 78 years, I think, something like that. 73 years, thank you. 73 years. And still, guess what? No king. But as the old song goes, the king is coming. We're going to have the rapture of this mystery body that was hidden in the Old Testament. That will indicate the start of the 70th week of Daniel, which will culminate with a literal Armageddon, at which time Zechariah 14 is fulfilled. By the way, let me just ask a quick question. Was Zechariah 9.9 fulfilled literally? Did the Messiah come riding over the top of the Mount of Olives on a colt to fall of the donkey? Yes. Now, then why would we not think that Zechariah 14 would happen literally as well? That when the city is under attack, when it looks like Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, all of a sudden King Jesus shows up standing on the Mount of Olives this time, not as the humble suffering servant. This time as king of kings and lord of lords. And will literally rule and reign on planet earth for a thousand years. Now picking up in chapter 24 with that reminder and background we see this. And the Lord showed me, it's being Jeremiah, behold there were two baskets of figs. They were set before the temple of the Lord. At what point in time did this take place? After Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away Captain Jeconiah. You see up there on the screen, Jehoiachin is also Jeconiah, sometimes called Coniah in the Bible. That's the one and same individual. After he was carried away, this being the second conquest, this being the time that Ezekiel was taken captive as well, then the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, and the carpenters, and the smiths, blacksmiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. All in all, when we read the history that's recorded in Kings and Chronicles, about 10,000 were taken back captive at this point in time. So, after this period, so here we are some 30 years into Jeremiah's ministry. We're down to this last king shortly before the city would be destroyed. And it has this vision. One basket of figs had very good figs in it even figs that were 1st ripe. The other basket, I love the King James Version, uh, that is the Hebrew word raw, it means bad. And they translated it naughty. You naughty figs, that's good. Figs are representative of people. Uh, One basket was good, one basket was bad. So bad they couldn't be eaten. Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, figs. The good figs are very good. The bad figs are very bad, so bad they can't be eaten. They're evil. And again, the word of the Lord came unto me. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, just like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away, captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Now, if you were a Jew alive in Jerusalem at this point in time, you would have considered yourself one of the lucky ones to have not been taken captive, been taken as a slave back to Babylon. You would have assumed that, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm still here in Jerusalem, I got the better end of the deal. But God is telling Jeremiah, that is not the case. As a matter of fact, those that have been taken out, this is actually an act of mercy towards them. These bad things aren't those that were taken to Babylon, The bad things are those that are here. Now, not exclusively. Jeconiah was obviously a bad fig, but he was taken to Babylon. Jeremiah obviously was a good fig, but he was left behind in Jerusalem to minister. But as a whole, the bad things were those that were left in Jerusalem, and the good things were those that had been taken. They actually were going to be spared from great suffering which was going to, in fact, come. Verse 6, I will set mine eyes upon them for good, those that have been taken into Babylon. And I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up, and will not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Let me stop right here. We've talked before about Jewish hermeneutics, Jewish prophecy, Jewish Bible interpretation. Prophecy is not just prediction and fulfillment. Prophecy is pattern. You know, as we studied the Passover a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the Passover lamb was staked out on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. was observed for four days. On the 14th of Nisan, at 3 in the afternoon, the Passover lamb was slain. We see that Paul says Jesus was our Passover offered for us. John the Baptist pointed at Jesus the first time he saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. We know that Jesus made his triumphal entry on the 10th of Nisan, being staked out for observation. We know that he came into the temple complex every day for the next several days and proved that he was without spot or blemish. He was, in fact, a sinless lamb. As Pilate himself declared, uh, I find no fault in this man. And then on the 14th of Nisan at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when Jesus bowed his head and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. So we see prophecy is patterned. Well, also, with Jewish hermeneutics, there is a principle called pardis. means garment. But it's Peshat, remez, drosh, and so. What that means is every passage of the Scripture, they have different interpretations. One being the Peshat, the literal, clear teaching of Scripture. In this situation, we know that Judah is going to be judged. That's the literal interpretation. Uh, the the ramez would be application. A madrash could be uh, even a prophetic interpretation. So is what's considered by the Jews to be a mysterious, hidden uh, interpretation. So, let me give you an example. We do the same thing as preachers. You know, we preach a literal. You know, for example, you know, we preach about David and Goliath. Well, what's the story? <clears throat> little David, little runt of the family of Jesse, went out and literally took a stone and killed a nine and a half foot tall uh, uh, champion of the Philistines. Well, that's the literal story, was it not? Yeah. Well, we preachers will often make applications and preach sermons like uh, you know, facing the giants. You know, talking about giant uh, obstacles in your life, and then. You know, we have faith and do things the right way and trust God. You can go out and you can overcome it. Well, that's an application. So we do the same thing as Christians. But I want you to understand as we go through this, there are some short-term applications that will literally be fulfilled in the return of Zerubbabel. And there are some prophetic applications that speak not just of judgment of the promised land, but judgment of the whole world. Not just, I'll bring you back from Babylon, but I'll bring you back from all nations. What we talked about in chapter 23, there is going to be a deliverance that's going to make you forget all about the Exodus. Plus, well, I shared just a moment ago, that certainly wasn't trouble, because that wasn't really all that impressive. I mean, it was a miracle that God had prophesied that Cyrus was going to release them. But when the king is giving you permission to then provide you travel funds and everything else, that's not nearly as impressive as walking through the Red Sea on dry land. I mean, are we in agreement? So there's going to be some prophetic uh, eschatological uh, interpretation in every one of these uh, books of prophecy as well. So, I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not pull them down. Well, it could not have been Zerubbabel because they were pulled down again by King Titus, or uh, by Emperor Titus in 70 AD. I will plant them and not pluck them up. So that's got to be speaking Something that's still yet future. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Well, for those of us that know the Jewish people, we know that hasn't happened yet. The traditional Jew has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. One day they'll recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14 talks about all this. Where at that moment of deliverance and Armageddon, there's going to be initial celebration. And you would celebrate too. If you thought you were about to die and all of a sudden somebody rode up and rescued you from from Sir Death. But then they're going to look a little closer. And they're going to say, where did you get the nail prints in your hands?" And then it's going to dawn on them. And there's going to be grief at that moment in time, too. But they will, in fact, recognize that there's not two messiahs. There's one messiah that's coming twice, Zechariah 9.9, 9, Zechariah 14.1. And just as the evil things which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely, thus the Lord: so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the resident of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into not just Babylon... But all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt, and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword and the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Now we're going to run through chapter 25. Are you still with me? Everybody stand up, wave your hands a bit, pretend you're a Okay, stand up and pretend you're really excited. All right. Hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. All right. These are real instances that took place. To understand the political alliances. The Jewish kings were constantly attempting to make political alliances with others rather than trusting in God. That's what you see in the background of of, of Isaiah chapter 70, where we see the prophecy that uh, the Messiah would come and and, uh, I'll give you a sign and he should be born of a virgin. Well, Isaiah was trying to convince the Jewish king to trust the Lord, the Jewish king. The Jewish king was trying to create alliances, political alliances, for protection. So, the days of Hezekiah, uh, there was a faction that was fond of Babylonian alliances. You remember when Hezekiah, after he'd been miraculously healed, there was a delegation from Babylon, and he took him inside the temple and showed them all the temple treasuries, and he was in trouble for that. Well, Jehoiakim was placed on the throne initially by Pharaoh Nico. I don't want to bore you with the history lesson, but you remember Josiah... Babylon was coming to power. They were attacking Assyria. Pharaoh Necho in Egypt saw this as an opportunity to enhance their power. So they went up to the battle. They were going to the Battle of Carshish, famous historical battle, which really put Babylon as the supreme low-world power. But Pharaoh Necho was on his way. Josiah was not a fan of the Egyptians. As a Jew, you can understand why when you look in history. Josiah was actually a little bit more portion, partial to the, uh, to the northern alliances. Nevertheless, he was faithful and trusted more. Up oh, there's a pass that goes through the mountains, and the ancient city of Megiddo guards that pass. It was there that Josiah was killed in 609. Egypt came down and took control of Jerusalem. Not a siege or anything. But after Josiah's death, his son Jehoahaz was placed on the phone for three months. Well, Pharaoh Necho came down to get things under control politically. Didn't like Jehoahaz, because obviously, as you read it, you'll understand that Jehoahaz must have had the same political leanings as his father and opposed Pharaoh Necho. So Jehoahaz was taken back as a prisoner to um, Egypt. And his Brother, Jehoiakim, was placed on the throne for 11 years. Now, eventually, Jehoiakim uh, died. At, eventually, Babylon came and took control. Jehoiakim died, his son. Jehoiakim was on the throne briefly. The second conquest, that came to power. And that brings us up to where we were at in our last lesson. But chapter 25 actually takes place seven years before chapter 24. So obviously, as we've said many times, Jeremiah is not in chronological order. It's a number of incidents basically put together by topic. So you see on the screen, chapter 24 took place in the time of Zedekiah's reign. Chapter 25, about seven years earlier, under the reign of Jehoiakim. Verse 1, chapter 25, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year that Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon. His father died, and rather than General Nebuchadnezzar, he became Emperor Nebuchadnezzar. That time that he took control of Jerusalem. In which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, After the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, this is the twenty-third year that I have been preaching to you, bunch of morons. And you haven't listened to me yet. You would call that a fruitless ministry, would you not? The word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. By the way, it wasn't just Jeremiah. There were other prophets, as you can see on the screen. You look historically, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, during the time of Jeremiah. You can see over there the blue bars, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, there were others. And you haven't listened to anything. The Lord hath sent unto you all His servants, the prophets. And this figure of speech is that they're getting up at the crack of dawn and working all day and working late into the night, basically just demonstrating how faithful they have been to their ministry. But you haven't listened, verse 4, nor inclined your ear to hear, verse 5. They, being God's prophets, said, turn again everyone from his evil way and from your evil doings and dwell in the promised land that God has given unto you and your fathers forever and ever. Remember, God promised, you do it my way, I'll bless you. If you don't do it my way, I'm going to judge you. Don't go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Don't push me, God said. Don't provoke me to anger with your bad behavior. And I won't have to spank you is what's being said here. Verse seven. Yet you have not listened to me, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, even to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith Jehovah, Saba, the Lord of Armies, because you have not heard my word, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, Babylon. And again, Babylon's actually to the east, but because of that big thing called the Arabian Desert, they would travel up the Fertile Crescent along the Euphrates River. And come down from the north. That's why it says coming from the north. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? This pagan king is called God's servant. God has is using him for a purpose. To judge his people because of their disobedience. And I will bring them against this land. And against you Jews, the inhabitants of this land and against all the nations for it's not just you it's all of these nations are going to be judged i will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation moreover i will take from them the voice of mirth the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride you wonder know what that means that's supposed to be a happy time when you get married <laughs> The sound of millstones and the light of the candle. That would be basically the pursuit of happiness that encompasses everything that God has given to us to enjoy for His glory our family, our business, our education, our livelihood, our everything. And this whole land shall be desolate, empty, and in astonishment. In fact, Mark Twain as he traveled the world wrote a book called Innocence Abroad. I-N-N-O-C-M-T-S Abroad. Talking of his journey, he talked about his time going through what the British called Palestine, the Holy Land. He talked about this as a malaria filled wasteland. And he goes on to say, and no wonder this land has been cursed by God. And God said that He would do that, and He did. How many of you have actually been with us to Israel? Okay, many of you have, many of you have. Hopefully the, the world will get back to some sanity and you'll have a chance to go. It is amazing now. It's amazing. And to hear the testimonies of those that lived there. Both the Arabs and the Jews dumbfounded at what a wasteland it was. And what a magnificent, fertile paradise it is. This whole land shall be desolate. And it's going to be astonishing. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, if you go back and you look at the law, Leviticus chapter 25. Not only did God provide a day of rest for man, which was to be every seventh day, That God had ordained a rest for the land, which is to be every seventh year. And just as if you get a little greedy and you think, if I make so much money in six days, I'm going to go ahead and work a seventh, so too you get a little greedy and say, if I do so well in six years, I can't afford to let the land rest a seventh. That was disobedient to God. Also, as you look at it, because we study it's not good for the soil. A number of, of, of ramifications. However, The bottom line is after a period of about 1,000 years from when the Jews first came into the land through the time of the judges, through the times of the kings, up until this point, there had been a total of about 490 years or 70 years of sabbatical years that they had not honored. God said, you owe me those. I'm going to collect them. So I'm going to take you out of the land and let the land rest. For seventy years, and it will come to pass that when seventy years are come. By the way, Daniel, we know Daniel chapter nine, wonderful passage of scripture. To show you how influential and important Jeremiah was, Daniel was reading the letter from Jeremiah, and that is how Daniel discovered the length of time that they were supposed to be out of the promised land. It should come to pass that when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon. Isn't this interesting? We've talked about this before. In fact, I don't know. I've never read this in any commentary. Discovered it. Genesis chapter 11, where it talks about the Tower of Babel. Obviously, Nimrod, in the first attempt at global tyranny, apart from God, attempted to establish one great global government, worshiping him and the host of heaven. And Scripture says that God observed what was going on and noticed that the people being unified with one language, who's going to intervene? Who can possibly stop them from doing wrong? Well, obviously we know God could do anything He wants to. God could rain fire from heaven into one or two or a hundred pound hailstones into one or two. But what did God do next? Immediately after this, God divided the tongues and divided the nations. So what was God's response to this? God created nations. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons we have nations and we do not want a global tyranny, which by the way we are working quickly towards right now with the Great Reset, is through the use of nations, when there's an Adolf Hitler that comes to power, he doesn't just grow and grow and grow until he rules the world. There can be a United States of America that God uses to raise up and check the spread of the evil. But if there's just one godless tyranny, then nothing can check the growth of man's wickedness. It will be unhindered. So, this is a perfect illustration. Because of Israel's disobedience, God was going to punish them by using the nation of Babylon. Now here's what's funny. Eh, it's kind of funny. It's actually kind of... Oh, I guess it's kind of funny. I think it's kind of funny. God also told uh, Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So God used Babylon, in like fact, we saw earlier in the last chapter, he actually calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant to come and chastise Judah for its disobedience. But then God was in turn going to punish Babylon for lifting a hand against his chosen people. When 70 years are accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon. That nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it perpetual desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. And for many nations, great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the cup of my wrath, And give it to them. They're all going to drink deeply of it. Whether they want to drink of it or not. They are going to drink of it. Verse 16. They shall drink. Just as a man that drinks liquor. uh, Becomes consumed by it. He says I am going to consume them. Because of the sword that I will send among them. Then Jeremiah said. I took the cup at the Lord's hand. And I make all the nations to drink. Unto whom the Lord hath sent me. Now. I'll go through this. Basically, this encompasses the known world at the time. To wit, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, the kings thereof and the princes thereof, to make them a desolation and not a, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh's going to get his and his servants of people, all the Mabel people and all the kings of the land of Uz and the kings of the land of the Philistines of Ashton, and Ashton and Ekron, the remnant of Ashton, Edom, Moab, the children of Ammon, the kings of Tyre and Sidon, the kings of the islands that are beyond the Mediterranean Sea, even Arabia, Nedan, Shima, Buz, and all those that are in the utmost corners, all the kings of Arabia, the kings of the Midgul people, the uh, Midianites and others that dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, and the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Sheshak. That is encryption. Jeremiah is writing this. Who knows? How long until Nebuchadnezzar is going to be there? That was a and that was a Jewish encryption of Babylon. And the king of Shishak shall drink after them. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to judge them. I'm judging them because they were enemies of my people. I'm judging my people because they've been disobedient to me. But then I'm going to judge Nebuchadnezzar because he attacked my people. <laughs> Therefore, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink! be drunken and throw up and fall that ass out cause the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they say, Oh, I don't want to drink of your wrath, Lord. Well, guess what? You've already done evil. You're going to drink of it. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For lo, I begin to bring evil in the city which is called by my name and should and should be utterly unpunished. And if I'm going to punish my people, do you not think I'm going to punish the Gentiles for their disobedience? And, and, and two, you will not be unpunished, for I will call upon the sword upon all I will call for the sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. Let me make this note again. Some people will look at Revelation and say, Well, part of that is, is God's wrath, and, and part of that is just man's wrath. I would say again, for the umpteenth time, as we've seen going through Jeremiah. God's wrath doesn't necessarily mean hundred pound hailstones or fire from heaven. As we have seen, God is using Nebuchadnezzar to pour out his wrath and judge these other nations. So, raising a sword can, in fact, be God's wrath being poured out upon a country, which is the case here. Therefore, Jeremiah. Prophesy thou against them all these words and say unto them. Now get a picture here of the line of the tribe of Judah. The Lord shall roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon His habitation. He shall... You see where I was here. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I I thought I had that verse on this. That's another one. It's cross-reference. He shall give a shout as if he was treading the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. All right. Isaiah chapter 63, one of the prophecies that pertains to Armageddon. When Jesus shows up on the Mount of Olives, who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? A grape stomper would have, as you can see there, bloody feet, not the blood from grapes. And the lower part of his garments would be also covered with that grape juice. Who is this that looks like he's been treading grapes? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to serve. So the question is, who is this? The response, God says... Me, I the speaking righteous, mighty sir, to say, Wherefore, Lord, art thou red in thine apparel, and why in thine garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Here's the response I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be strengthened upon my garments. I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Let me stop just for a moment. I didn't put the verse in here. We talk all the time. Isaiah, excuse me, Zechariah 9.9. King Messiah comes humbly, bringing salvation, riding on a donkey over the top of the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.1. King Messiah shows up, leading an army on a white stallion, destroying the enemy forces that are surrounding Jerusalem. The Jews are puzzled. They say, is it Messiah of the lineage of Joseph, humble Joseph sold into slavery? Or is it Messiah of the lineage of David, coming in victory? Are there two Messiahs? Nope. One Messiah coming twice. What was hit in the Old Testament is that period of time in between there. We would call that the age of the called-out assembly, the church age, hidden in the Old Testament. A mystery, Jesus said in Matthew when he gave his mystery parables of the kingdom. A mystery that Paul further expounded upon in Ephesians chapter 3. Also identified when Jesus showed up in Nazareth early in his ministry. He'd been working these miracles and was the conversation... Of all of Israel. Is this the Messiah? It can't be. We saw him grow up as a boy. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, it must be the Messiah? Look at the mighty works that he does. He shows up at his hometown synagogue. They say, Rabbi, would you read our text for this Shabbat? He opens the scroll of Isaiah 61. And begins reading a messianic prophecy. And stops in the middle of the passage of scripture. Let me read it for you. I'm in Jeremiah, and so we know that Isaiah comes just before that. Isaiah chapter 61: The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim that it's time to accept the Lord. And he stopped right there and rolled up the script, the scroll, handed it back to him, and said, Today, this is fulfilled right before your very eyes. Pretty good so far, right? What you don't know is he didn't stop at a period. He stopped in mid-sentence. The rest of that sentence is, In the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is saying right then, I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. 9. I'm bringing salvation. When I come back, Zechariah 14, is when the day of vengeance, we can first up there, for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed is come. A noise shall come covers all the earth. For the Lord had a controversy against the Gentile nation. And he will plead with all flesh he will give them that are wicked to the sword saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts: behold evil shall go forth from nation to nation and a great tornado a whirlwind shall be raised up. By the way a whirlwind throughout scripture just like we know in Oklahoma that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's judgment. And a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coast or from the edges of the earth. And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. So this seems to be more comprehensive than just Judah. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be like dung strong upon the ground. Howl, you shepherds, you political leaders, you spiritual leaders, and cry and wallow in ashes, you principal of the flock. I think that that might infer even something deeper than just what we see here. That principle is singular. I think that could be a reference to the coming antichrist. For the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished, and you shall fall like a pleasant vessel. And the shepherds shall have no way to flee, nor the principle of the flock to escape. The voice of the cry of the shepherds and the an howling of the principle of the flock shall be heard, For the Lord hath spoiled their pasture, and the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And he hath forsaken his covert as the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor, and because of his fierce anger. It's no wonder people didn't like Jeremiah's preaching. Nobody would confuse him with Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, this is the message of repentance and judgment that he was sent and he was faithful to carry that message. Uh, this Sunday I'm going to preach a message that I actually I preached it last week. I developed it. I just developed it. I preached it last week in Orlando, the congregation down there. I'm going to preach it to you all this week. I discovered something... Here we are 20-something weeks into the study of Jeremiah, and something came to my mind from all the way back in chapter 1 that is very relevant to us today, and uh, I think uh, it's important that you hear. I think you will enjoy hearing it, so let's fill the place on Sunday morning, of course 8.30 service, then again at 11 o'clock, and it uh, ties in with the message of Jeremiah And as you can see, as we've gone through Jeremiah, it certainly was pertinent to his generation, but we can certainly make application to us in the United States of America. There's been no other country that was ever birthed white like ours. Not as God proposed to Israel at Sinai, but as our founding fathers, going all the way back to the the Puritans, the Pilgrim forefathers, came here begging God for his protection and uh, begging God to create a great land through them. Uh, And just as Judah was punished when Judah turned their back on God, if God would discipline his own chosen people, I don't know how we as America can expect that God will not also judge us if we don't repent and turn back to him. It's one of the reasons my knucklehead cohort and I, we spend so much time doing what we do. We love our congregation. God has called us here first and foremost to shepherd this people. But we're trying to awaken the pastors of our generation. We need more pastors that are faithful to the Word like Jeremiah was, even when it's uncomfortable to be honest with people. And to preach to turn from sin and turn back to God before ultimately it's too late and God sends his judgment on the land and all the people.